Hello, my name is Tina Camellia and this is The Starting Block, a weekly conversation on science and society with an emphasis on disinformation, data and democracy. Before we start, I'd like to let you know that the transcript and credits for this conversation are available on the sidelines, a supplement to every edition of The Starting Block. Now in the next lane, writer, actor, director, Joe Gukadas of the Instant Cafe Theatre Company. Our topic this week, political satire. Ready? Let's go. You can start by introducing yourself and especially your work in uh, political satire. Let's start with that. So I formed my theatre company along with three other friends in 1989. And that theatre company started off as a company who or which wanted to do political satire. This was in 1989, partly because in 1987, of course, there was Operation Lalang. Um, I've been doing a lot of other kinds of theatre, you know, a bit of Shakespeare, a bit of Shaw, literally. And I began to feel, I think other people, my friends also began to feel, well, what can we say about what's happening right now? But none of us were playwrights, right? So we didn't think, well, we can't just sit down and write a play. So some of us had become very close friends on a production of Romeo and Juliet. And during that production, we talked about, you know, about the possibility of us forming our own theatre company. Subsequently, somebody actually just offered us a space upstairs in their restaurant and said, would you like to use it? So then that kind of was what prompted us to then get our act together and form this theatre company. And uh, it was very clear to us that what we wanted to do was to do this kind of comedy. Well, I would think that a typical Malaysian would duck and cower after um, witnessing something like Operation Lalang. Well, it, it was a year and a half later, so it wasn't yeah. so immediate. I mean, I think the immediate thing was upset. I don't think even when it first happened that we wanted that I, I or any of my close friends wanted to duck and cover. I think, you know, mm-hmm. I, but rather I think there were a lot of us were very upset yeah. Uh, and my father was himself, my father was a journalist uh, who used to be in the diplomatic service. So I grew up in quite a political family in that way. I mean, when I came back from university, the first thing I did was to help him with a book he wrote called The Musa Dilemma. Uh, I mean, I helped him, meaning I proofread it. I didn't do anything else. <laughs> so I was proofreader uh, for a book called The Musa Dilemma, which was a book about Musa Hitam basically saying why he was going to choose to leave the cabinet of Dr. Mahathir Muhammad. He talked about the kind of anti-democratic practices he felt were in place already. Uh, so I was never a Dr. Mahathir fan. Um, and as much as he now has claimed that Operation Lalang was nothing to do with him, but you know, the police is making some decisions, you know, it was very much part of that whole authoritarian attitude he had towards dissent, right? So I don't think that it's in the DNA to shy away. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. People were quite happy to come along with that. And, I, and of course, originally the work wasn't as political, but it definitely grew political because that's also what audiences really responded to when we first started trying it out. Let's talk about the audience. Let's talk about how how much has changed since you started. This was like three decades ago when you started, yeah. right? And I was saying that I would think that people would shy away from it. I'm curious about how the audience has changed, like in terms of the reception, in terms of the willingness to participate. That's a really interesting question. And I don't think the answer is so simple because I don't think it's been a linear journey by any means. I think like when we first started doing uh, the political comedy, uh, the political satire, a lot of people were, you know, the, the naysayers. They all said, oh, you won't last a week. And then it was like, well, you won't last a month, 32 years later, right? And it's because of the nature of comedy, you know, and comedy allows people to laugh despite themselves. 
mm-hmm. despite their fears, right? Which is, I think, why we gravitated towards comedy because it was a very fearful time. 1988, 1989, very pe- there was a kind of a tension, lots yeah. of tension, in fact. So I think when people came and they could break the tension with, with laughter, it's kind of the, a case of the emperor's new clothes. Like, oh, here are these people like making fun of the emperor. And it was safe for the audience because they were not doing it. These mm-hmm. other people were doing it. So the audience also were very protected and we were complicit with the audience and they were complicit with us you know, we we've always been very fond of our audience I mean they come to watch us and they say thank you and we say well thank you because actually you're allowing us to also in a way get away with it mm. you know and you know we did have some run-ins with the authorities in the early days but at that point the government was so sure of itself so strong that they just saw us as being that's okay it's, you can do that because um yeah, they're unassailable. <laughs> and in fact, we had a very weird relationship with the authorities, with the government, because they started to hire us. Uh, but we used to kind of joke about it. In fact, and it would be individual people, like Ling Leong Sik, for example, would right. often, if he was invited for a company dinner, he would say, well, could you get in some cafe? Then I might consider coming. And we used to say jokingly to him, we'd, we'd meet him at these shows, we'd say, we should give you commission because of you that we got this particular gig, right? So. Yeah. It went from being people in a bigger restaurant, in a small room upstairs, to people who were now being invited to perform at a government function with a thousand people. And it's a really odd sensation, right? Mm-hmm. And sometimes I felt, oh, should we be doing this? But a friend of mine pointed out, he said, well, you know, if you, if you only do it in that other space, you're preaching to the converted. But when right. you go and perform in these other kinds of functions, you have a lot of people coming up to you later and saying, my God, I didn't know you could say things like this. Oh, that was really funny. I didn't know you could say that. And of course, sometimes you can have people coming up to you and say to you, how dare you say that? You shouldn't be criticizing our glorious leaders kind of thing. So, you know, I don't think it's about like whether or not people have gotten more open or less open. I think there are pockets of people who have always been open and there are pockets of people who are always fearful. I, I definitely remember doing this one show at the PJ Hilton. At that point, the government was doing this this campaign called Quality, spelled with a K-W. <laughs> you know, I remember just going there in the middle of the afternoon and doing the show for all these sort of uh, civil servants who were completely bemused, but who just loved the show. They really liked it. And I remember going and doing a show in Penang. Again, this must have been in the mid-90s. And I think it was our first show in Penang. And one of the maintenance guys came up to me when we were doing our sound check. This elderly Malay gentleman came up to me and he said to me, oh, very good, very good. He said, I'm very happy Instant Cafe has come to Penang. I love Instant Cafe. So I said, hey, Bachi, when do you see Instant Cafe? He said, oh, i never seen. I said, huh? Then why do you say you love Instant Cafe? He said, oh, I read about it. My friend told me about it in KL and I love it. Because he loved what we did. He loved mm-hmm. the fact that there was somebody out there doing this kind of thing. That really kind of uh, blew me away. And over the years, I, you know, people have come up to me and said to me, actually, we decided to do X because we saw what you guys were doing, or we felt like we could say this because what we saw you doing. And I think that's been kind of very gratifying. Yeah, I would, I would imagine. But let's take a couple of steps back and look at the definition of parody and satire mm. and comedy and if we observe on social media for, for instance we also see how people try to hide behind these definitions or mm. or use it to justify insults oh it's just it's just a joke it's just you know have have yeah. a sense of humor well i think you know the word joke is a catch-all for a lot of things but yeah. i think the terrorist isn't really interested in jokes as such 
you know, the humor is a kind of a, a means to an end. Mm. Uh, but the satirist is interested in saying something about their society, mm. about uh, those in authority. So satire always aims up. There's a wonderful poem by somebody whose name I can't remember now, but I, I remember reading a lot when I was first starting off doing satire. And I, I remember this poem, which talks about, I think maybe Milton, actually. He says that the satirist doesn't go after every poor constable who creeps into a tap house. I think another poet which said that satire is not a blunt sword. A satire is like a very, very fine rapier. It cuts the figure in front of it in many pieces, but the figure remains standing. Right. So it's a delicate instrument and it's used against those in power. I think jokes aren't that. I think jokes are a free-for-all. Jokes are like a brawl. I think, I think satire is like a courthouse drama. It has rules, it has etiquette, it has finesse. And of course, once in a while, you, you lay a sucker punch to, to win your, your case. And you use humor all the time, of course. But your, your goal isn't just to get people to laugh. I mean, I can't remember again who said this thing, it might have been Baudelaire, that you use humor so that when the mouth is open wide, the truth can slip down. And I remember like my sister, who was our producer for many years, um, but also would write some of the political songs. But, you know, she was, she was a lawyer who had left the law, very disillusioned with things uh, after the darkness that had descended on the courts. So she came and she started working as a producer and she would write these songs. And then we'd always say, okay, Indra will write the songs and then I'll take them and make them funny, <laughs> right? Because she would just say what needed to be said. And then we would slip a silly line in there or a silly allusion in there or a funny pun in there to make people laugh. Yeah. So they would hear what's behind the song. So, so talk me through that process more. I'm curious to learn how, how do you use satire as a form of dissent or or use it for sociopolitical commentary because I don't know if it is well understood because we still have ministers who are sharing articles from The Onion thinking that it's a it's a real news article, right? Well, you know, the other thing that happened a lot well, like when we first started Instant Cafe uh, in the first couple of years, people kept on saying, uh, those who didn't like it said it's not our culture. And so I always counter this by talking about Wayankulit. And Wayankulit is completely social comedy and social commentary, right? Mm. Embedded within the larger story that they're telling of the Ramayana or the Mahabharata, the telling of it is to say something about what's going on in your society right now. It isn't talking about mythical beings. And the reason why people go to watch the, the Wayankulit is not because of the big story of Rama and Sita and the kidnapping and all the rest of it. They go for the comic clown characters who appear all the time and are watching, okay, there's Ravana abducting Sita, there's Rama lost in the forest, there's um, Rama cutting off the nose of Ravana's sister and then creating all this chaos, there's uh, Lakshman kind of, you know, chasing the deer, all these things. But the characters of Pat Dogo, Pat Long are the ones watching and saying, what the hell, man? Why are they doing that? And then talking about things which happened in the village just that day, which were similar, making satirical allusions to them. This is basically to say those people in power are crazy, causing a lot of chaos. They're making our lives really miserable. <laughs> so for me, political comedy, political satire, I think is part and parcel of every culture. You want to examine it, you'll find it in Chinese culture, in Malay culture, in Indian culture, in Inuit culture. I think it's, it's part and parcel of what it is to be human to want to thumb your nose at authority. But the thing is, authority creates systems to make you not. 
right? right. And they'll say, oh, it's because this is not Confucian, you know, and Confucianism has been very, very, um, I think, misrepresented as being this thing which had no sense of humor. But of course, you had that at the same time you had Taoism, which is so full of humor, so full of self-mockery, so full of mockery of those who are in authority. And so I think that the people who don't understand the onion are just people who are humorless. I don't like to think that this is a kind of Malaysians don't understand it. You know, I, I don't think it is that. I think though we are being told in, and we've been told over many years that it's not our culture. Mm. And I think for me, that was one of the big reasons to make it, to be very bold about it was to say, yeah. actually it is our culture. People would say, oh yeah, you're just doing the kind of a Western thing. And I'd be like, no, here, have a look at this. This is found everywhere. And I remember once actually getting into a bit of an argument with somebody who told me that irony was a British invention. And I'm like, mm-hmm. you can pull out every, any book of literature from the 12th century around the world and yeah. you'll find many examples of irony because human beings, I mean, we have a sense of humor. And I think even in the Malay culture, we have Bahasa Bakias. There's a way we, we use language to convey multiple layers of meaning. Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But But I was wondering if you could, you know, for instance, evade responsibility for your words and your mm. action on stage for spreading false information. I'm not saying that you are, I'm just saying that, you know, yeah. th- these are some of the allegations that I'm sure people in your industry would have faced, right? Because you're calling it, oh, it's just comedy, it's satire. And you then can, you know, evade responsibility and say, that, no, no, I'm not responsible for spreading propaganda or misinformation. You know, do you see that happening? Do you see that being a potential problem? I mean, I can't speak for other people, but I can speak for Instant Cafe in that I don't think we ever would say that it's only comedy. Mm. Yeah. I think we would be very happy to say, to claim that, no, we have, we have an intent. We have a purpose. And I'm not going to shy away from that and say, oh, no, it's nothing. We didn't mean anything. Um, unless we are, we are called in by the authorities. And then you have to play a game with them, right? Because if they admit that this is something which they don't like, then they are seeing themselves in that. I remember once we were called in by the Home Ministry. Uh, and they talked to us very obliquely about, you know, how people were taking advantage of us and, you know, and the DAP was taking advantage of us. You know, when you say things like that, people like DAP, you know, they take advantage of you. And so we're like, oh, really? We didn't know that. Because I don't feel any responsibility to be truthful to those people who call us in, mm-hmm. because I don't believe that they have any authority to call us in. But I will never say to our public, oh, it's just comedy, we're just making a joke. I feel that the joke is purposeful. And I think that uh, the satirist is purposeful, but you don't need to explain yourself in a way. So if I think about, for example, Jonathan Swift, right? Uh, when he wrote A Modest Proposal in which he said, uh, oh, okay, there's a potato famine in Ireland and nobody's doing anything about it. So he said, I have a little modest proposal since obviously there's a famine in Ireland and over here in the rest of Great Britain in Parliament, they're not doing anything about it. Well, can he, he wants to propose to the members of Parliament that they suggest uh, eating babies. He said, there's a surplus of babies. They're going to die anyway because of the potato famine. So I would suggest eating babies. Now, of course, there were people who said how how dreadful a man he was to propose such a thing because they completely missed the point, right? He was saying, essentially, that's what you're doing. You're killing people. People are dying because of this. So since that's what you're doing anyway, you may as well just go for it and just eat them. At least then you'll solve your famine problem. As soon as you begin to explain the satire, you kind of lose the point. So you don't explain it. You make the comedy and people will then 
get into a, a, a state of mind about it and they will argue with other people and they will sort it out. They'll figure something out. There are those who will feel, hold on, I think this is about me and not like it very much. But then they'll make them reflect. Why is it I don't like it? What are they trying to say? Uh, why is I really laughing when, when they say that? <laughs> you know, what's the truth there that makes people laugh? Because it is the truth which makes you laugh, right? Because you recognize something. Oh, and that's really what, what comedy does. That's why you feel so free, why you feel so liberated. And I, I remember one of the writers, um, in one of the Instant Cafe writers, long-time writers, Cam Raslan, he always used to say, because of course I'd always be on stage, right? I would write, but I'd always be the person on stage as well. And he would always be sitting in the audience. And he said he would love to sit in the audience at every Instant Cafe show. And he'd always sit in the back because mm. he would watch the audience and how they reacted. And there'd be like a collective like, oh, no, and then they're like, what? And then a forward kind of momentum as they were laughing and then going, oh, no. And then a forward momentum as they laughed, right? Because they're recognizing things as truthful. And I remember at a, a dinner for the for finance and trade ministers in Langkawi in the mid-90s, I think, or maybe like 1998, 1996, pre Um, And Anwar Ibrahim was the um, person who had organized this. I mean, not the organizer, but you know what I mean. It was his gig. <laughs> and they invited us to perform, and we did. And he sat in the front table with his head in his hands and then <laughs> his head in his hands and then laughing and then his head in his hands. And he said to me later, years later, actually a few years ago, he told me that he got into a lot of trouble after that for that show with the rest of the cabinet who said to him, why do you hire in some cafe and some of the things that they said made fun, they felt, um, of Dr. Mahathir and made Anwar look, look better. But Anwar said he didn't feel that he made him look better. He said that's why he had his head in his hands all the time. And I think comedy in general, um, but also political satire, it's become more accessible because of social media compared to like in the 80s and the 90s when you started, right? But also at the same time, I think that also allows for the authorities to crack down hard and crack down fast. So we see it with a parody account of Burnama, which is our national news agency, right? I think they call themselves Burmana. Their Twitter account got taken down because mm-hmm. they were confusing the public, right? Mm-hmm. And then recently we have um, the Gika fiasco with uh, Fami Reza because of the whole vaccine controversy with the royal family, right? What are your thoughts on those elements of uh, humor and social media or in, a, in an online space? Certainly, it has changed everything. I mean, <laughs> when we first started off doing comedy, um, this was the, the, the era when Muhammad Ramat, then information minister, was trying to ban fax machines because mm. it would allow people to, <laughs> to spread information which he couldn't control. So it was a very different time. And I think that's one of the reasons why we wanted to do it. We wanted to do this kind of comedy because we felt, where could you find out any information? One of the reasons we were called Instant Cafe is because we, I, for me and for the others in the company, when you first were thinking of a name, it was the coffee shops was where you went to find out what was going on oh, in the country. Yeah. Not the newspapers. There was no internet. The newspapers were just completely propaganda. So where could you go? So that's mm-hmm. why it was like, well, you can go to Aliran. Aliran was a big and very important news source for us. And you can come to Instant Cafe because we would also kind of have our friends who were kind of connected and we would get some inside scoops and things. And then we would read. Um, those few publications where things were being found out. Now, of course, there's a lot more information, a lot more people are clued in about what's going on. 
definitely Fami really um, has a big following. So this is, let me make an example out of yeah. him. And things like, like Bernama, I really think if they had called themselves like something different, they wouldn't have had the same trouble because the Tapir Times was yeah. actually undisturbed for a very long time. But I think it's because people genuinely did con- get confused. But what? People were genuinely confused and sharing new stories. I think it then got to a point of people were, were full of ire and then they were irritated and so they reported it. Because, you know, when you've been fooled, you get irritated, you, then you report. And then they were like, oh, yes, this is wrong. You're confusing people. Actually, because they literally had been confusing people. <laughs> and I think if they just let it alone, after a while, people would have realized this. But, you know, even in, elsewhere in the world, articles on The Onion get, still get shared as if it's real news. Yeah. It just does, you know. That, and that's a reality. My, one of my characters, YB, has a Twitter account. And he sometimes is very active, sometimes not so active. I always really love it when people write to me and tell me I'm an idiot for saying certain things, right? Because they really think that's a YB character. No idea about Instant Cafe or Joe Cook Plus or anything like that. And YB only ever writes like he's YB. And some people have written to me and like, oh, you know, how dare you? How could you say such things? And I'm like, and of course, I, just, I never reply as myself. I only ever reply as YB. And I think at some point, they'll figure it out. It's okay. I think the same thing would have happened with uh, um, Bernama <laughs> and the difference in medium so obviously with a with a live audience mm. on stage so, so you have a clear view in real time the reaction of the audience to your performance but online you're separated from the real-time reaction of your audience how much how much does the medium matter in getting that message across no I, I think the medium can be anything really. I think the medium is just the medium, whether whether you're using Twitter or you're using YouTube, or using live performances. Honestly, the reason I haven't been doing so much that's satirical is because I kind of got a bit tired of it. You oh. know, and I feel like um, there's a lot of people now having those voices. So when when we first started doing this in cafe, it's because we felt like, come on guys, let's set, say something. <laughs> yeah. There was nobody else apart from at that point, Raymond Rashid you know, doing anything like this. And we felt, we felt it was a necessity. Now I feel like, you know, I don't need to do that anymore. There's a lot of people doing it and doing it really well. And honestly, especially in the last, since this last backdoor government, I just think I don't want to waste my time with them because everything they they do and say, just, just, it just gets me too angry for comedy even. Right. Yeah. But I think it's, and I think it's okay. There's many other people out there, you know, calling them names, putting them in their place, saying you have no clothes. Look at yourself in the mirror. That's what it's really all about. Whatever medium you want to work on. I mean, for myself, for example, I did the show many years ago. I think it was uh, maybe 2011, 2012, where it was Ribena Berry, but I was performing at a PKR function, a PKR fundraising dinner. And, you know, sometimes people say, oh, but that means you're pro-PKR. And I said, no, I'm anti-corruption, right? So at that point, I'm anti what this government is standing for. I'm anti-racism. I'm anti all these things. So PKR hires me to do a job. I think, well, look, UMNO hired me in the past. Mm. And now PKR is hiring me. I will still say what I want to say. You know, I always criticize both sides. But if one side is doing much more damage, they're the side you're going to criticize more. They filmed that that show and then later they put it online. Actually, they didn't ask me. And somebody said to me, oh, we saw this show online. I said, really? So I went and talked to them and they said, oh, we're really sorry. And I said, 
I don't mind it being out there. I said, just, you know, but you should ask, that's all. Yeah. But that got a lot of likes, a lot. And so suddenly Ribena Berry was being seen by many more people than she would have ordinarily have been seen by. Mm. And I was quite happy about that because I think what she said, <laughs> I, I stand by what she said, right? And the other thing was after the, okay, which was the election where they, they talk about the Chinese tsunami, was it the 2014 elections? I think that's when I started doing the series called Tanya YB, right? So mm. um, YB has these short clips, which you can find on YouTube. And a friend of mine called me up and said, you know, Joe, do you want to, you know, do this um, because I'd appeared on his show as YB, and and I and I was like, yeah, I've got so much upset inside me. I need to go out there and and, and make comedy. You know, I'd come in every few weeks, and they would ask me questions, and I would improvise, or sometimes I'd write the answers down. I knew what I was going to say, and then they cut them and put them on clips on YouTube. And it's really interesting to me that so many years later, people are still watching those clips. For me, I'm really happy about that. I'm really glad that those things are out there. Sometimes I, I come across one, and I'm like, and I can't remember at all that I said this. It's <laughs> funny. <laughs> Rather, why be funny? So I think that having that kind of material out there in whatever form is is good. Whether it's like with Fami, it's it's very image driven. Zunat's image driven. It really reaches reaches a mass audience because of that which is also, I think, really important. It's the equivalent of graffiti, basically, right? In the past, you'd go and put it on walls everywhere, but now you have a, you can do graffiti. And when I say graffiti, I don't mean, I don't diminish the um, graffiti at all. I'm a big fan of graffiti, right? I mean, it's art. And now you have graffiti, which can travel around the internet at super speed. And mm-hmm. it's just great. It's great. But we also have the, the MCMC, the Malaysia's uh, Communications Multimedia Commission, and also with the change in government, we've, we've had a couple uh, in the last few years. Does it affect your materials? Does it affect your work? Or I mean, I think that you know, over, over 32 years, you see a lot of swings. And you see things as being very cyclical, and they are. But you see, the thing is, I think, about our government is that it is not a very organized force. Right? Mm. It's not a... In Singapore... They, they have a very clear policy about dissent and they follow it to the letter. Here, it's like suddenly somebody will notice something and go, eh, yeah. and then noise. And then, but you know, so you know the noise will die down. I feel in a way that's why we have so many people who do speak up in this country because mm-hmm. they know that there'll be trouble for a while and then it'll die down. And you just get cleverer about how you then do your satire so that it can't be seen as being making fun. If you play the long game, you need to be in the game. So you need to be clever about how you do your yeah. satire. It's no point just sort of like boldly calling it out. As I said, it's not a blunt instrument. It's a mm. rapier, right? So that the person's going, what, 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 <laughs> what just happened? And I think this way is much more subversive because basically it tells everybody you can be smart and you can be safe and you can say what you want. Freedom of expression is important. We all need to be able to in some way express who we are and you figure out how to best say it and stay alive. Not to stay alive, it sounds a bit dramatic, but to stay and speak again another day. So you've got to be, you've got to be smart, you've got to change tactics, you've got to play the fool, basically, yeah. which is what it is. You've got to play the, the wise fool. It's an art on stage and off stage, I suppose. Yeah. yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yes. So that's how you deal with those in authority yeah. is also an art, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a dance, really, because they are also, I mean, the way I always see it is, those in authority are also just doing what they think is their job. Mm. You know, and that's, that's the way of the world. The world is that there are those in power and there are those who are not in power. And those who are not in power will always have a problem or should always have a problem with those who are in power 
to make sure the people in power don't get above themselves. We have in the Westminster system, a system which says that the government are the servants of the people, but often they act like our masters. They act like it's a, they're a, you know, feudal system and we are the serfs. These reminders of our relationship is very important. And it's really interesting to me that like the present government have made a few mistakes like that. Anything you do, any YouTube video has to go through us, for example. Then the furore, the bite back, in fact, yeah. they had to back down because you need to have a government which is afraid of you. That's democracy, you know, government where they're afraid of the people and then they will figure out how to keep people happy, but also listen to the minority voices. I think that's <laughs> well, of course, yeah. At the same time, you know, I always go and check to see what's trending in Malaysia, you know, <laughs> And as much as you can have, you can have make schools a safer place trending, it'll be trending for a little while, but BTS will always out-trend it. <laughs> yeah. You know, which but also makes me think, well, you know what? That's not a bad thing because yeah. ultimately people want to be left alone just to enjoy themselves and get on with it. And if a huge majority of the Malaysian population love Korean pop culture, you know what? I think that can only be good for us in the long run because why can we so readily embrace something which is not Islamic, not Malay-centric, not nationalistic, but just something just completely different from us. Yeah, That tells me something about what people actually want as opposed to what governments are telling people they want and what the identity aspires to be, a kind of internationalist cultural identity as opposed to what you're being told, your nationalist narrow identity. And, and speaking of lies and also comedy, it is storytelling, isn't it? And if you're a good storyteller, you can sell a good story, people will buy it. I mean, it creates religion. It, it's behind some of the best marketing campaigns, isn't it? A good story is, is at the core of it. For sure. I mean, when I first started off doing work in Instant Cafe, I, I, I didn't see myself as being the writer. It was rather, I was an actor. We wanted to say something. We would find a way. We would find, and you know, we, we experimented with all kinds of ways to get material, improvise, write down, spend three hours in a room, come up with two lines. And we learned a lot from each other. You know, and over the time we saw like some people were better writers, they wrote more. I found myself a better director than a writer, so I directed more. I began to read a lot more plays. And then your best teachers, your audience, because you knew what would work, what wouldn't work. You would, you'd learn rhythm, timing. I mean, comedy is a very difficult business. You know, we always say dying is easy, comedy is hard. Because you, you get one thing wrong and it can all just go wrong. You know, all countries have narratives, right? Mm -hmm. And national narratives are so dominant. Uh, which is what I think, you know, all we do is we provide counter narratives mm -hmm. uh, to the dominant narrative. And, you know, what you do in your work, what I do in my work, whether it's through comedy or journalism or a whole host of other things, these are all just presenting counter narratives so we know there's that no nation is made up of one narrative. I mean, I think one of the reasons I really disliked that one Malaysia concept was because it, it said, well, you're, you're trying to decide what our narrative is and you, you don't get to decide, we get to decide mm. and we get to decide how complex we are. How do you see um, comedy and political satire and the importance of it, especially in this post-Trump, post-truth era? Mm. Certainly there's a space for it, but how do you see it playing a role in, for instance, sparking conversations about real social issues and other serious issues? Yeah, I still go back to the idea of, of saying the emperor has no clothes. You can, still, you can still go behind the curtain 
no amount of people saying, well, that's fake news, that's, you know, post-truth. I mean, we have to be intelligent also to, to be able to sift for ourselves, mm-hmm. right? And of course, comedy doesn't just come from the, the left wing. Yeah. You, you know, you have your right wing comedians too who are painting a very different narrative. The worry I think I have more is that we're going to end up in having living in silos where we're not listening to each other at all. Because mm. I think that, you know, we should listen to what the right wing commentators have to say, even though I think for the most part, they're saying things which I don't believe in, because I think I, I, I believe in a much more open, tolerant society with much more equality for all than I think many right wing organizations really want. Um, you know, they're actually very protectionist. And I think, you know, on the left, we're a bit more messy about inclusion. You know? <laughs> uh, and we think, well, it can be worked out in, in the long run. I do feel there's a, a role to play. Let, let's take, for example, um, let's make schools a safer place. I really love this campaign. I, I'm so happy that it's, it's taken off the way that it's taken off. I hope it continues. But even there, there's a lot of beautiful art being made, very powerful art being made. And sometimes there's also art which is making fun of those who don't understand why this is so important. You know, it paints the male teacher, for example, in a very bad light, you know. And I think that's necessary. It's, it's necessary for us not to give them so much credit because they are wrong, but they're small people. They're small men who, who act like this. Let's not make them into big demons who are, they're not worthy enough to be that. We need to, we need to pull them down. I mean, one of the roles of satire is to deal with sacred cows, right? In that way, we are foot soldiers to these movements. We are the clowns to to those movements. We are not the movement itself. We're just part of it. We're part of something bigger. We're part of reformatsi. We're part of make school a safer place. We're part of pro-democracy, anti-xenophobia, anti-racism movements. Because humor is very necessary. Otherwise, we become very dour. And as I said earlier, you open your mouth wide so the truth can fall in. Well, that is quite the note to end on. That's Joe Kukathas sharing her thoughts and experience in political satire on the starting block. If you would like to join me on the show for conversations like this, get in touch at tinacamelia.substack.com. You can also find a transcript to this conversation there. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't. And if you enjoyed this episode, consider sharing it with someone. Till the next one, goodbye for now.